Welcome to Forecast News In Conversation With. I'm Editor-in-Chief Angie Lau, and I'm sitting across from Emma Tu. She is with Long Hash Incubator, coming from the very traditional markets of ANZ and McKinsey, and now all of a sudden you're in the crypto blockchain space. So how's it going so far? Great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we were just discussing before sitting down here this incredible space that we're sharing here in Taipei, Asia Blockchain Summit 2019, and a lot of interesting dialogue as to the potential of blockchain. And over at Longhash, Emma, you're really seeing the value of blockchain projects, talent pool. You've got incubators in Hong Kong, in Tokyo, in... That's right. Zug, uh, Berlin, um, Hong Kong, Shanghai. So we have six uh, offices across the globe. What are you seeing in those cities that are different than potentially cities in North America or in most of Europe? Um, that's an interesting question. The reason why we set up a multiple geography network is because we feel blockchain technology is a decentralized technology, right? There's so much culture in this um, um, technology space such that everyone is used to open, uh, open source, everyone is used to collaborating no matter your geographic location or your culture or your religion. So, and that's why we see of having a global uh, presence where, say for example, our Berlin office is very connected to the local developer community, which they're known for some of the best projects in the space, such as Parity, such as Lisk, such as um, I think IOTA is also based out of Berlin. So that makes sure we keep a tap in terms of what's happening in the developer world. And then the Singapore office is where the East meets West. There's lots of investors, projects, governments coming through and ideas gets exchanged. And that's where we can bridge the gap, right? Bringing projects to meet investors, finding strategic partners. And then we have a place in, say, Shanghai, where a lot of the big money are from. Um, and, and Tokyo, where a lot of uh, enterprises are looking to adapt blockchain. So we're really trying to leverage the strengths of each of those offices and trying to uh, give a holistic offering to the projects we're helping. Yeah. You know, I share a same DNA. We both come from traditional markets. You yep, come very from much so. <laughs> ANZ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you also are ex McKinsey. Yeah. Um, so, really, you kind of saw the traditional markets, you saw how that functioned, and then you got into crypto and you got into blockchain. What was the impetus for you? The impetus, uh, that's a really good question. I got into blockchain about two and a half years ago. Initially, it was just kind of, I came across Ethereum and I was like, oh, wow, smart contract. Imagine a world running on smart contracts. So I started digging deeper into that. And it was not so much in terms of the ICOs, the investment. It's really because I, I was a corporate banker and I knew the pains of customers um, when it comes to trade financing. The whole industry hasn't evolved for like 100, uh, 100 years. We're still very documented heavy, lots of fraud. Um, and then syndication loan. I was a syndication loan banker for, for a while. Uh, I also see it's a, a, you know, when you do a club deal, there's so much back and forth, exchanging information, documentations. Um, and I just I, mind, I find it mind boggling. And when I come across blockchain, I was like, wow, a lot of those business logic can be programmed into a smart contract. And imagine how efficient would that be? How much cost would that cost, uh, cut? Um, so that's kind of what driven me to blockchain from technological potential perspective. But what's more important, I think it's the philosophy. 
because for the first time, uh, there is a technology that embodies. I think internet did that in the ninety early ninety eighties nineties, right? When Tim Berners Lee created this idea of World Wide Web, that's decentralized, that allows everyone to have uh, easy access to information, uh, and I think. Blockchain does the same because it, it has this notion of democratizing access to data, democratizing access to capital, um, and also uh, potentially allow consumers, uh, people, average people like you and me, to kind of take back the control of our data. So there's a lot of promise in that. A lot of critics as well. Mm. Uh, we heard it on the stage today. Yeah, yeah. Rubini uh, uh, really slamming the entire integrity of not only crypto, but the practical use of blockchain technology. Mm. Um, is he right? I, th I think he's neither right or wrong in a way that is true. When the, uh, the technology was first embraced by somehow the people, the curious people, right? And those are not exactly the mainstream people. And uh, you look at some of the early adopters of cryptocurrencies, true, there's dark web, there's Silk Road, right? And there's also like a lot of curious cypherpunks who are curious about this technology. And they're not exactly coming from, you know, your Ivy League schools, your, you know, multinational companies and stuff like that. So there's a lot of experimentation. And I think there are people who are taking it um, at, to, to take advantage of the early stage of the industry. Um, and the same thing goes for security industry, right? If we look back in the um, history of the securities industry, there were penny stocks before the whole security industry was becoming well-developed, well-regulated, and having global standards. There's people who are taking advantage of that. But you cannot say the tool is bad, I think. That's why uh, to achieve mainstream adoption, you need a lot of infrastructure to fall in place. You need uh, transparent standards, you need regulatory understanding of what they're dealing with and come up with uh, appropriate rules and regulations. Uh, you also need uh, a general people who are using it to understand what's this for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the question that regulators are asking right mm -hmm. now is what is this for and how do we safeguard regular retail investors and users, mm. right? And really, how do we safeguard the mainstream? Mm. At the same time, for those of you who are innovating, who are investing in these blockchain projects, mm. how are you dealing mm. with almost that adversarial relationship? Mm. Some would say evolving into more collaboration. Mm -hmm. That's certainly where it started. So how do you balance it? Yeah, so for us, we actually have quite a bit of um, um, conversations because I, I think I'm based in Singapore. We have a we're very lucky to have very progressive regulators, right? Um, although some people might say they're still not as progressive as I would like them to be, but I think you know they are regulators. At the end, end of the day, they always tend to caution, earn on the side of caution. Uh, but I think comparatively speaking, Singapore's regulators are always having constant dialogues. Yeah. So the first to roll out fintech um, sandbox, uh, they uh, roll out payment service bill, which is going to come into action uh, later this year, which is going to uh, have clear rules and regulations when it comes to uh, provide service providers that are dealing with cryptocurrency. So I think this kind of dialogue is very important and as industry um, players and as an incubator who is in a more or less um, neutral position, 
We do a lot of workshops, we do a lot of dialogues with the relevant uh, regulators to facilitate the discussion, and we also kind of invest in technology that's going to help them in terms of regulating and understand the industry. For example, one of the projects we invested in was doing KYC AML standards. So what they're doing, they're trying to combine the uh, KYC AML standards technology within the traditional banking fiat world with what's happening in the blockchain world. Now, the blockchain world has um, is an emerging thing, right? Yeah. There's no standards, even regulators doesn't have clear regulation around that. Yeah. Um, so, so we take this thing to regulators and say, hey, there's this new tools that's potentially developing and maybe we can work out a way to help you guys to understand how best to regulate this. Because the best way to regulate is actually to embrace and understand Right. Um, so I think things like this is what we're trying to do to help to shape the standards and kind of um, help to kind of perhaps address some of the impediments along yeah. the way. So what inspired you mm. to get into long hash then? Mm. Um, so I was already thinking about joining blockchain industry for a while, even when I was working in McKinsey, you know, working, I don't know how many, 75 hours a week <laughs> and still kind of trying to keep an eye in terms of what's happening outside of McKinsey. Um, and uh, I have sort of like through common friends, I've met the co-founders of Longhash and I was really kind of enchanted by the vision they have, because if you look at incubator business, to put it bluntly, incubator business is not an easy business to make money, right? But I was really um, convinced by their vision to have to build an ecosystem to educate people to invest and support early stage blockchain startups and to really ensure the um, flourishing of the ecosystem. So I feel coming from uh, a very much institutional background, this is the kind of comfort place I want to be yeah. in and also be exposed to what's happening in this space. What are the projects? What's your investment thesis? Mm. And just tell us some of the promises, some of the companies that yep. you're incubating. Happy to share. So right now we've got uh, 10 portfolio companies. They are a mixture of uh, infrastructure building projects and industry specific use cases. So infrastructure meaning they can be solving for easy onboarding. Uh, one of the company called Keyless, that's basically taking people's biometric data, thumbprint or face scan to turn that into private key and distribute that private key into distributed database um, such that uh, to enhance customer onboarding experience and also ensure the ownership of that data. Um, and another company, like I mentioned, called Unblock, uh, that's doing uh, KYC AML, combining the fiat world with the crypto world. And it's a highly talented team, uh, come from MIT Media Lab. Uh, they have um, uh, advisors, professors who used to answer Senate inquiry when mm. it comes to, you know, dark web money yes. laundering. Yeah. So there are a lot of experiences coming to this new space. Right. Um, and also we have a project called uh, Track.ai. It's a Singapore-based project. It's a, they're building a marketplace for renewable energy credit. Yeah. So uh, basically renewable energy credit uh, is needed by big companies such as Facebook, Apple, who have huge data centers. In order to remain carbon neutral, they have to buy what well, they need to buy a renewable energy credit or carbon credit to stay, uh, stay uh, carbon print, uh, footprint neutral. Yeah. Uh, but the traditional market, how it works today, it's it's broker owning market, 
And uh, it's uh, when a REC is generated, there is no centralized registrar on global standard per se, and there's no reliable way to burn it. So people just make announcement in a, a, a newspaper saying, I burned it virtually. Right. But I mean, so how do you ensure they're not going to burn it five need, years later or somebody else is doing that? You need authentication. Exactly. You need record of proof. You need really a trustless system that blockchain promises. Yeah. Do you find that the projects innovate faster or slower depending on their jurisdiction of base? Faster? Um, for example, I yeah. ask you this question because there seems to be flow of talent coming to Asia mm. from the U.S. Mm, mm, mm. And it's very uh, direct link that some would say to the regulatory mm. and the tightening of the regulatory environment. Yeah. I mean, just take a look at Facebook Libra mm. and the moratorium immediately yeah. was asked and cast upon this project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's definitely an interesting point, but I feel like the whole... Um, blockchain space, all the projects are very fluid in a way that they were organized in a decentralized way and they're organized in a global way. So they can have, the team might be coming, the core team could be coming from five different ge geography. They might have foundations in one locations and uh, subsidiary in different locations, yeah. which makes it really hard for regulators. I yeah. empathize with that. Yeah. Um, but because of that, they're able to tap into, you know, maybe talent, like I mentioned, in US, in um, uh, Berlin, Europe. Are you finding that talent? Are the is U.S. talent and North American talent coming to Asia specifically? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. But not necessarily migrating over. I think uh, they see the attractiveness of Asia. Say, for example, there's a lot of investors uh, and there's um, the top three exchanges are all Chinese operated. Um, and uh, uh, there's just so much interest in this space, right? So, and also, I guess, regulation perspective, there is some sort of regulation arbitrage, right? Because different jurisdictions move at different pace. Some are on the spectrum of being more open and some are on the spectrum of being more strict. And that kind of drives project in a very fluid way. But I don't think that's a permanent thing because mm. the whole regulation is evolving. The landscape is evolving. Uh, even Day if, by day. Exactly. Even if U.S. has the most, I guess, perhaps stringent rules right now. Uh, but like it or not, Silicon Valley is still where most of, a lot of the tech talents resides, right? Um, and there's so much VC money as well. So, so I, I think it's, it's an evolving thing. Are you competitive because you're not in Silicon Valley or, you're, or should you be in Silicon Valley? It's definitely on the card. Um, but I think right now, the stations we are, every office serves one purpose. And I think our competitive advantage is really the Asia presence, our connections to Asia investors, uh, our, um, I guess, familiarity of the regulatory landscape in Asia. Um, so so I, I think that's where we're playing. So even its projects coming from Europe, coming from US, they, have, they see so much interest in Asia when they come here. And that's where our home base is. Yeah. Asia is a fascinating home base. Yes. That is very, very true. Um, there's a lot of needs uh, that companies need. Um, how do you, do, do you address those needs as an incubator? What are, your, the, what are the demands and the needs of a project mm. when they actually do come to you? Uh, I think it can be break down into, firstly, uh, early stage funding. 
Um, so not only us, we can potentially connect them to some of the investors that we're closely um, uh, connected to. So two of our, our uh, strategic investors, one of them is called Fenbushi Capital. They are one of the first blockchain-focused VCs based out of Shanghai, invested in Ethereum. Um, and uh, since then, they've invested in, I, I think, more than 100 blockchain projects, some of them including world's leading projects. Um, then the second one is Hashkey Capital under Wanshan Group. Um, I don't know in Hong Kong would you come across, but Wanshang is a uh, largest um, uh, auto parts manufacturer based out of China, and it has morphed into a conglomerate. It's multi-billion conglomerates. So um, when projects come over, in addition to funding, we can also connect them with the partners we have in this space. Say, for example, the the community managers, the marketing outlets, yeah. um, the the. Um, the, the potential uh, ecosystem partners such as exchanges and wallets. Um, so, so, yeah. Ultimately, this entire industry and the success, mm. including the work that you're doing, including the work that a lot of the projects and the talent that is, that, that is contributing to those projects depends on one thing, and that's mass adoption. Yes. Do you think we'll ever get there? I think what do we you think will. we need to do, you need to do, in order for mass adoption to happen? Uh, there's three questions. I'll break it down one by one. I think will it happen mass adoption? Um, I'm a firm believer in that. I think uh, compared to two years ago when I first come across this industry, we have progressed so much, right? And you have like big companies like Facebook coming out and uh, launching Libra. That's a testimony by itself. Um, and then the second question is what needs to happen in this whole thing? I think there's multiple pieces, maybe uh, three areas. Firstly, regulation uh, needs to be more transparent. Secondly, the technology itself. Um, I think for certain use cases, um, there is suitable technology, but as overall, the customer experiences is just terrible. Even for me, <laughs> I think who has been deal, you know dealing with this whole thing, it, it's not user friendly. So if one day my parents can use it, like how today they use WeChat Pay, yes, uh, you know you can give money to a beggar on the street in China through WeChat Pay. That's where we made it. <laughs> so I think there's so much in, uh, improvement in that space that needs to happen. Yeah, and the third thing is, I think. Uh, the industry standards among the incumbents and open mindset will have to happen uh, because so far most of the disruption happens more from a bottom-up way and you can see payments is one of the most uh, disrupted areas because um, that's where startups have a chance but when you come to syndicated loans when you come to capital markets you know that that's that's just kind of licensed players activities although ICO kind of disrupted the capital raising but it's very much licensed than big boys game right yeah um, so then for people to kind of really see mass adoption in the incumbents like um, I was talking about earlier they need to look at this as a whole right they need to look yeah. at this and kind of especially some of the bigger players Say for example, like JP Morgan. JP Morgan, people might not think JP Morgan coins a real cryptocurrency, um, but JP Morgan has a great advantage because they are one of the largest USD clearing bank out there. So when they launched JP Morgan coin, they set the standards. And I think, um, like it or not, it helps with mass adoption. And I think the big players out there ought to take this kind of more progressive approach because you can and you should set the standards. Of course, you have 
on this on the spectrum, like smaller players, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, probably wait a dop and see because they don't have that much capital to burn or that much sway in the industry, which is fair enough. Um, and maybe that's a different strategy they should take. And yeah. I, well, I'm going to borrow a phrase, you know, people once upon a time voted with their feet. And I think in this digital age, people have the opportunity to vote with their money and digital assets. And, and that's a whole new ball game. But absolutely, it's a game that's not even in the first inning yet. So it's, yeah. it's really great to speak with you, Emma Tsu. Thanks for having me. Of it's great to be here. It is great to have Thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs>